Well, we, we got together again because we both really wanted to uh, revisit the 80s. <laughs> no, we didn't. Professor Nathaniel Gripweed of the 80s Synth Haven Institute of Melodic Shoulder Pads in Papua New Guinea. East Bream summarises the story so far. The boys, Rowan Dorsenball and Kurt Smith, having failed in their first recording venture as graduate, not the graduate, suffered initial setbacks in their second incarnation as Tears for Fairs via two flop singles, Fortunes Changed with the release of Mad World, which hit top three of the Pop Parade in 1982. This was followed by a number one album and two further top five hits from the album. The Hurting. This immense upturn was slightly marred by the release of a non-album single, The Way You Are, which stalled at 23 in the UK pop charts in late 1983. We joined the boys, post-success, somewhat rudderless, looking for the new direction. 1984. So you can imagine how much of a setback the chart position of The Way You Are would have been to the boys after three consecutive top five hits. Emma surely felt like we've got it made now. We've we've got it. We've 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 both feeding a one foot in with Mad World, got the second foot in while doing the kind of weird hypnotic jerky dance that Roland specializes in with the hurting and the follow-up singles. So we're in the pop firmament now, we've made it. And then the next single, the non-album single, doesn't even get top twenty. That was what changed us because it was the one of the ultimate attempts at perfection and came out one of the worst things we've done, really. I mean, in, in, as far as emotion goes. So that's, after that, it, it, that, that is sort of the time where we turned around and thought, well, something's going wrong and, and this isn't really the way we want to approach things. And that lack of direction continued a pace of the recording of the next song and potential single, Mother's Talk. So that was why it took us a long while before we um, came back and did Mother's Talk in the manner we did. And at the end of 83, on the previous tour, they'd already played effectively half the next album. They had broken Head Over Heels, The Working Hour, and Mother's Talk, and they performed them all live in 83. They had these songs earmarked for the next project, and they obviously had selected Mother's Talk as the single. They went into the, the studio with producer Jeremy Green. We then started to work on Mother's Talk, the single which we were doing with a, a man called Jeremy Green, who was an engineer, producer. That was rejected by the record company. You kind of get an inkling of what it would have been like from the live version from 83. kind of gives you an indication there's no guitars it doesn't have the heavier sound which is what they came up with the finished version and once more we've we ended up working with chris hughes who produced the hurting what he did really was 
try and get us out of this sort of synthesizer rut which we were in. We, we wanted everything programmed, we, um, everything had to be, each part of the whole had to be interesting in itself. What he did was sort of kick that out the window and sort of forced me to pick up the guitar and smash hell out of it. <laughs> So then what might have seemed an act of regression, which is returning to Chris Hughes after trying a different producer, ends up proving to be the masterstroke. So they got Chris Hughes back this time with Dave Bascom Engineering, not Russ Cullum. Dave Bascom, who, you know, was fantastic, would, would be more likely to be asleep on top of a newspaper than be arguing with us. So, um, you know, waiting for us to make a decision about something. So but Dave brought a certain ease to the process as well. A kind of cuddly lion yeah. sort of at the front of the desk. Tears of Fears had tried, had a couple of full starts on that album, and uh, I think they tried to go off with some other people, other producers, hadn't worked out, and they got Chris back in, but they didn't want to work with Ross Cullum again, who was kind of Chris's engineer and kind of co-producer. Ross is a fantastic engineer, but I think him and Chris are very close and kind of had the same repartee and, and um, were a bit of a kind of formidable team as a producer, you know, if you, for Roland to sort of battle against sometimes, mm-hmm. if, you, if that makes sense, you know. So I think he felt it was just, he wanted Christian, but, but maybe not Chris times two. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And they worked on Mother's Talk. Mother's Talk was a tricky one. was probably what you would call the transition record to get us away from the hurting. Mother's Talk was my, my attempt at doing uh, Talking Heads. Two nights. My feet just fall with the change in the weather. They've been burned, you know. But I couldn't get away with it. My feet just fall with the change in the weather. Weekends, we can work it out. My feet just fall with the change in the weather. Weekends, we can work it out. When the wind blows, when the mothers talk, when the wind blows. getting Mother's Talk right by re-recording it at least once more, that pushed us into a different direction. So I don't like it, but it's a very important song. Now, I've got to say, they don't like this. I don't think anyone involved in making this record likes this song. I've got to say, I absolutely fucking love this track. Language to my and I may be in a minority, I don't know. I just think it's... No, we'll come to the single that had the most impression on me at the time as a kid. But in retrospect, this one, I just, I just, this just... You can hear how different it is to anything it's done previously. So with the heavier sound. You've got the Jang trope, of course, though. But I think it's just... There's not a second of this song that's wasted. Not a second of this song that doesn't work. 
and it also features my favorite bit of music on the entire record on the second verse when the sequencing comes in the second part of the second verse Whether consciously or subconsciously, that just propels you forward with the song. I just love that. And just, I don't know, it's just everything about the song. It is definitely the most underrated track on the album. Obviously a playlist song. The Mother's Talk was a, a strange blend of sort of uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood <laughs> meets a garage band. That did okay in the charts, but the number 14, I think, or something. Which is an improvement on the way you are, but still a disappointment for where they wanted to be. Another rethink was required. The B-side Empire Building. Samples from both Today I Died Again from Simple Minds. And dialogue from the film Breaker Morant. Australian film from 1980 starred Brian Brown and Edward Woodward 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 Woodward. Wood. I don't have much to say about it really. I mean, it doesn't really have enough to be able to get to three minutes. It's just a bit of sound really. Well, Peter, this is what comes of empire building. So you go from Mother's Talk to Shout. We're sort of given a month to finish writing songs for the album. By this time that we had had Head of the Heels was already there. The working hour was already there. Uh, but obviously we needed a lot more material. So I, I took, a, took a month off, went, stayed in my house in Bath. Bath. And got a Lindrum and a Prophet 5 and set it up in my dining room and went at it you know i started listening to other records and copying rhythms and all that kind of stuff and in that month i came up with the chorus for shout everybody wants to rule the world i believe and we then just um, started i think shout was the next thing yeah because it was always like the emphasis on getting a single out quickly Ian Stanley, our keyboard player, came down and I played him just the chorus because that's all I, I had at the time and it was like a mantra thing. I imagined it to be just simple rotation of a chorus um, a la all we are saying is give peace a chance. And I played it to him and he said, um, that's, that's a worldwide smash. I said, you've got to be joking. Went around his house and he just played these three notes bracelets and saying, chat, chat, they were all out. These are the things I can do without. Come on. And I was like, oh my God, this is just anthemic, simple, brilliant. I played it to Chris, Chris Hughes, our producer, and he said the same thing. The thing about Shout was the very first time I heard it, we were in the studio and Ian came in, he said, you have to hear what Roman's been doing over the weekend. And he played the, the part and it was just, it was unbelievably haunting. And he just hit a note on the synth and went, shell, shell, just off the cuff. And we said, stop everything. We have to record this now. And I had a rhythm which was uh, stolen from uh, a 
Talking Heads track off Remaining Light. which runs through the verse and the chorus. Ian suggested various notes on the verse and that set me off coming up with the verse melody. And he said, I got that talking head rhythm that I just couldn't get out of my head, you know. And he sort of turned the drum machine on and then he just got this and he just had a JP8 there and he just went, you know, this bass note. So, and he just sang it. And all it was was just a lind drum and, a, and one note. And then the other bits came later. I mean, that was just, just the chorus he played me. I don't know, it took weeks to convince him that it was any good. It was the first record that we'd release which I'm totally happy with. There's nothing that I'll change on it, I think. It's the best version of the song we could have done. The initial decision, I think, was um, actually a commercial one. It was like, well, why don't we just start with the chorus, you know, then everyone gets to hear the song, you know, the catches bit of the song, straight up front. Basically it was like, let's not mess around here and just go straight for the juggler, effectively. Only kill a circus, go for the juggler. <laughs> And suddenly it hit me from the outer cosmos, all at once, shout. Now we're going to go to The Big Chair, which is your album, which should be out in a month or so, right? It's March, March the 11th. Yeah. Okay, we have a single from it called Shout. Yeah. What was the background on this? Shout was, um, <laughs> we were just talking about Mad World, was the same thing, just people not accepting things blindly and just, you know, believing what they read in the papers sort of thing. So that kind of thing, why believe it, you know, just because it's written down. Okay. It's a, a protest song, shall I say. A protest song yeah. from Tears for Fears. <laughs> Here's Kurt doing his Bob Dylan, right? <laughs> shout on K-Rock. Shout, shout. Exclamation mark. Shout! Exclamation mark. This is my entry point for Tears of Fears. Can I emphasize the impact this song had on me as a kid? It's huge for me. I mean, if I had to choose my top 10 songs of the 80s, this would definitely be up there. Possibly be, even be number one. Ronan says Mother's Talk was important, and this is why. Because basically, Mother's Talk was a primer for this. Having something this big and epic in scope and sound after the internalized pop of the hurting singles would have been. A massive shift and Mother's Talk was a good halfway house 
between the world of the hurting and the world to come with songs from the big chair. Yeah, I like that. Beep, 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 beep. And it finally worked out what makes it a classic. It's the shift into the last verse. <laughs> really raises the song into another stratosphere. I just, I just, oh, I just, you get that tingles with that bit. I used to think it was taken down your god, not guard. Taken down your god, which I think works better. And when I typed that out as a note, and I read it back, I typed down taken down your dog, which might be even better still. I have a mild form of dyslexia. And I like that as well. And of course in the next single, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, there's a reference to the release of this single. Now I, I know this because I had the seven inch, and this is this is so sad. <laughs> My mum worked for the cop, which is like, um, like a supermarket type place in in Britain. And my mum used to work. She used to bring back these boxes of freezer labels. You know, like green and blue freezer labels and I used to with my vinyl and that I used to time records because I had my 90 minute C90s or D90s as they were I used to do a lot of home taping actually they were it wasn't 45 minutes aside it was 46 and a half minutes because I used to time them I used to always want to like fill the tape up right to the very end without it breaking off halfway through I just like just annoy me both when you had a song that didn't complete and the song, the tape finished, but there's 45 seconds left, or you'd have like two minutes of silence at the end of the side. So I'd also want to time it, God, is that sad? Get it right to the end of the tape. So I used to time records and use these labels, and this is gonna horrify any vinyl enthusiasts out there, and stick the, these stickers on the back of the timings of the songs. So I could use it for my timings for my tapes, that was the idea. So I timed this on vinyl, it was five minutes, 55 seconds. So like, when I hear them said, oh, it's six minutes, they took five seconds off. The English record company wanted to take five seconds off of Shout, which was a six-minute single, because they felt it was too long. Five, five seconds. seconds, yeah. Oh, I'm sure it would have made all the difference. Well, that. yeah, so, I mean, that's why it was a hit, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I always assumed it meant they'd edited it from the album version, which was six and a half minutes. Because they had a six-minute version and they took five seconds off to make it up. Obviously, the record company was thinking, we can't have a six-minute single. Just take a few seconds. We can say it's five minutes then. And, of course, in the last best of Rule the World, they put the US edit, the four minutes 47, I think it is, single edit, which is shocking. They can hardly complain now when they've sanctioned that version being put on. It kind of fades out the guitar solo. bass synth on this not bass so I'm not sure what what Kurt contributes to this record but it's, it's epic isn't it it's just fantastic it's not dated or aged at all the drums also seemingly taken from when the levee breaks by Led Zeppelin
never been a big fan of Led Zeppelin. I don't, I don't like rock music. I always prefer pop. Um, <laughs> I actually have more Spice Girls songs on my iPod than Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd combined. <laughs> I'm married. I've got four kids. You just as God made me. Uh, I contacted Sandy and McClelland and does the backing vocals on this and head over heels. He's on Twitter and asked any recollections of the sessions. And he said that he did so many he couldn't remember it particularly, but he did recall knowing at the time that it would be a massive hit. And that's the thing, everyone seemed to think that at the time, except Roland. Chris and Ian Stanley heard the chorus, that repeated mantra, and knew it was gonna, knew it was a hit. They were dying to work on it because they knew it had that potential. It's just interesting. So this was the breakthrough. It cemented their position as prime pop practitioners in the top ten. Released end of '84, but didn't hit the top ten until '85. It went up for nine consecutive weeks. Imagine a single doing that today, hey pop kids. Go in the charts at 45, went up to 35. The chart positions: it's 45, 35, 32. No, no, 45, 35, 32. That must have been shit, exclamation mark. Going from 35 to 32, it's like, this is one, this is it, right, yeah. Where you are, meh. Mother's talk, meh. Shout, this is the anthem. Up 10 to 35, ooh. Up 3 to 32. You'd be shitting bricks then, wouldn't you? You'd be like, oh, f- Should we form graduate, not the graduate again? Should we see what they're doing? Massive leap to 13, up 19 places to 30. Anybody who used to love pop music, <laughs> in the day. Remember that thrill of the charts on Tuesday? Later on it was Sundays. And that gradual t- climb to the top. That's how you don't get nowadays. A thrill of it. So you got to number 13. At the top 10 at the time featured Power of Love. I, 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 I. Like a Virgin. Hey. Last Christmas. Do the Congo, lots of great songs. And it gets into the 10. At three places to number 10. Two to number eight, ooh, it's gonna go, it's gonna go down next week. At one to seven, ooh, it's definitely gonna go down next week. Up to five, up to four, down to five, eight, and then out of the top ten. Seven weeks in the top ten. That's more than everybody wants to rule the world. That's it. And I was hooked from this point. This is when I started to go back and get their stuff. I loved it so much. B-side was the big chair, another nondescript soundscape that's not a B-side at an afternoon effort like Empire Building. And like that, credited to Orzable Smith, Stanley Hughes. But we'll have more. But its importance was, was beyond its worth as a track. We'll find out. In your big chair. 1985. So Shout peaks at number four, end of January, while work continues apace on the new album. Dave Baskin. I wanted to make the hurting part too. Suddenly all these guitars were going on. I mean, there was obviously a, a, a quite a conscious effort, certainly from Chris and the record company, to try and make it more American or more international anyway. So these guitars were going on, and I thought, oh, this is kind of a bit of a sellout. False modesty, but oh. I was strictly the engineer. I mean, there's, there's, there's three or four guys with very, very strong opinions and egos in the room, and um, I think I was Roland's ally. At the moment... Tears for Fears in the studio is myself and Kurt, Ian Stanley, who plays keyboards and also co-writes and, and keeps us vibing. Boom Shanker! And uh, Chris Hughes, our producer, who's also doing a lot of uh, drumming and also vibing. Boom Shanker! Boom Shanker! The way it was working around Songs in the Big Chair is I would generally come up with a few ideas, then I would bring them into the studio and we would just jam on them. 
that's how the writing came about. It wasn't really two people locked in a room, as I did with Nicky Holland on Seeds of Love. It was very much writing as we were recording. The feeling of going out of that into the next one was that we have to make ourselves more clear. We have to not appear to be just a couple of dour young men, which is why one, say, we choose a title like Songs from the Big Chair for the second album. I mean, you know, anything to sort of lighten it up a bit. And there's, you know, they're like Head Over Heels been a love song on there and, you know, different things that we just wanted to do and not appear to be so black. The album Songs from the Big Chair is released in February. The idea from the title was from a film called Sybil. A film and a book. Which is about a girl with 14 different personalities. 16 different personalities. And her analyst has this very large chair. That when she regresses back to certain personalities in her past, um, she always wants to sit with her analyst in this big chair because it's the place where she feels comfortable, not, not scared of anyone, not frightened about what the outside world thinks of her. Through talking and feeling things about her own past and the way she was mistreated by her mother becomes a bit more normal. <laughs> by that I mean she starts to behave in a way that's socially acceptable. And it conjured up just a really nice image for us, so we decided to use it for the, for the B-side of Shout. And uh, when we got to the album title, we, we had a lot of choices. And um, in the end, because the album is very much um, a combination of, of eight songs, we decided to call it Songs from the Big Chair. Cover is that classic black and white pose. About a jigsaw puzzle of it when I was uh, 13. Quite hard to do actually because lots, lots of black and black and grey. Roland's hair was about 400 pieces. Uh, the photo session, as described, not specifically for an album cover, and it must have been the same day as the Top of the Pops performance of Mother's Talk because they're both wearing the same clothes as on the cover. <laughs> The uh, relevant Top of the Pops performance was actually for Shout from January 1985. Come on, I'm talking to you. Come on. Thank you. In its way, it's just as iconic as the covers of The Hurting. They're both good covers. Um, they were trying to do the artwork, so they were going to get some kind of Miro-like squiggle. And uh, Kurt and I had just done a black and white photo session. I was looking at the proofs. I said, that's the album cover. It was as simple as that. They chose that picture, they put on the title, and it was like, it's a no-brainer. It's classic. So let's get into the album track one. I was hoping that somebody would said would say that um, Shout was the single for 84. There were so many protest singles, and I think Shout was the most direct of all of them. It works on two levels. It's um, Politically, it's about protesting. It's about stating the things that quite evidently are disturbing. For instance, um, the, you know, America's nuclear arms in England, the arms race, etc., etc. All these things, I think, need um, attention brought to them. And that's what Shout's saying. We started with this intro, didn't we? Oh, yes, yeah, of was, course. Um, never got used. Yeah. And uh, it's basically the sort of nice guitar part. So I was quite glad when we got rid of it. And then it comes in, you know, the main thing comes in. Yeah. It's very freeing when you when you stop being precious about things. Yeah. You? And that's what happened with that song in the end. We were like, yep, let's throw the kitchen sink at it. Why not? 
why why not do that? Why not put the big guitar solo at the end? And, you know, why not have the legs on you later and basically smacking you around the face? Why not have gigantic chorus vocals? Uh, classic era defining possibly favourite single ever. Of course by this stage in the early mid 80s we've entered the peak realm of the 12 inch single and the extended mix. Shout had at least three of these which the best is the US remix mixed by Michael Barbiero Barbiero and Steve Thompson was the latter accounts. So the company hired me to work on Shout and I absolutely love the song, love the album, love the band. And right after I finished that song, I happened to be in L.A. And I'm staying at the Sunset Marquee Hotel. This is a true story. And guess who I see? I'm sitting by the pool. And on the other side of the pool, I see Kurt and Roland. And again, I'd never met them before. Yes. Sitting at the table. I said, hi, Kurt and Roland. I'm Steve Thompson. What you think of the mix I did on Shout? And they looked at me and they said, what? Who the hell are you? What are you talking about? This guy out of his fucking mind? So I had the Walkman in front of me. I said, okay, I'm sorry you didn't know. I had no idea. Here is the remix I did. Roland picks up the headphones first, starts listening to it. Then he listens to it again, and his head starts bopping up and down. After they listen to it for a while, Roland signals me to come over. And again, I don't know if this is the exact wording, but I think it's close. He goes, I got to be honest with you. I am really fucking pissed off that my company didn't tell me that they took our song and gave it to somebody to work on. But I gotta be honest with you, this is the best fucking thing I've ever heard in my oh, life. Really? I really? You wanna hear something that just blew me away? They were playing in LA, they invited me to their show, it was two days later. I get to their show and they played Shout, the same arrangement I did on, on the mix I did. No I, I mean, that was a testament. Sample trope? Turn my mic up a little more too. That's Buster Rhymes as I'm talking to you. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Our classic album is Songs from the Big Chair, and track two is The Working Hour. That really is a combination of. Our drummer at the time, Manny Elias. Where's my drum, Batman? Came up with the pattern. And I was just messing about on the drums and came up with the basic pattern that goes on during the verse of the song, which Roland latched onto. And he started playing some chords to them. Ian had another set of chords, which were a totally different song. We just put the two together and it seemed to work. Ian had a piano motif which goes under the chorus. At that time, we were very into uh, a movie called Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie. T, yes, I like that. And Ryuichi Sakamoto. And Ryuichi Sakamoto wrote the soundtrack for the film, as well as starring as this Japanese commandant. The start of the working out is, it would certainly have been influenced by his work. And I had um, a verse and bridge, and they all happened to work together. We were rehearsing for a tour and jamming the song, and it came together very quickly. In half an hour. And we've kept it pretty much the same ever since. 
that's why it sounds it actually sounds like a band playing and everything um the song was written i would say when i was feeling a lot of pressure from phonogram and uh, that kind of stuff and that's what it is called the working hour we're paid by those who learn by our mistakes this is the working hour we are paid by those who learn by our mistakes the constant desire for another single L literally any song we had became the next single it's uh very sad song and it's about you know when you feel pressure and you feel depressed because of external the messages you're receiving from outside you know telling you you must do this you must do that you mustn't have fun and it was just getting on top of me and uh, it came out in a song Manny Elias, their drummer, gets a songwriting credit for the drum pattern, and yet he doesn't play the drums on the track. That goes to um, expert session musician Jerry Marotta. Why didn't Manny play the drums? Uh, I have to say, note for note, I just played what Manny, Manny's drum part. Mm. Um, you know, I regret, I regret doing that record because it was my friend Manny was their drummer, and they should have just had him do it. Why didn't but they? I don't huh. know why. Huh. They had play on some of the record but i don't know why they had me come in i, I don't know why but they did it's a bit like maca writing penny lane and then getting someone else in to play this bass and yes i am directly comparing mccartney to manny not for the first time i'll wager so the song always felt like this is the feel of a title track and that the working hour would have been a good title mainly because the working 42 minutes is a bit clunky McClunky. When it came to calling the album something, uh, there was a strong movement to have the album called The Working Hour. And there was a very big argument because I wanted to call it Songs from the Picture. And I was the only one. And I won. <laughs> See, I never knew that. Um, that's from the Classic Albums documentary they did. Very interesting from last year. But it was a re revelation, it was considered a potential title. Because I always thought it should have been the title. And this should have been the title track. I'm a sucker for a long intro, and if there's one minor flaw in this album, it is the sequencing. Title track or not, I would have led the album with this, with the big long intro. Because I, I love albums that begin with this kind of easing you into the world of the album. I think of another one, a good example is um, Liverpool, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It's not a great album, but I do like the... Um, the long intro to Warriors of the Wasteland where it kicks in. 
That's great. That works really well. I would have led the album with this one because of the long intro it's a great way to introduce you to the album it's two minutes before the vocals come in uh, clarification corner Rowland's vocals commence at the 159 stage of said recording and not two minutes as previously defined thank you secondly by February 1985 everyone would have known Shaq for months so there's no surprise there by leading with it give them the comfort of the hit the immediate intro on track two lead with the atmospheric long intro track at the beginning we go on to another change I've made secret sing wise later as for the song this is both epic in length and scope utterly magnificent I absolutely love this track when researching for this you or I because you're not researching a podcast episode on Tears of Fears statistically speaking that is the most likely scenario that you're not doing that but, but you end up or I end up listening to different versions of the same track sometimes bunch of them in a row and I listened to four versions of this in a row six to seven minutes of pop and I didn't tire of it three saxophonists saxophonists saxophonist 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 are credited on this track another proof of epicness a menage a trois of sexiness monsieur don't try to be funny with me here's your monkey therefore it is your money uh, the live version on the 1983 tour was performed by the drummer, Jerry Marotta. So he's created with the arrangement on the album, but he doesn't actually play it on the album. working hour that this that i played a saxophone intro live by myself i don't know why they didn't get me i, mean, I guess they got a saxophone player and so we'd have to do we did every night and then they hired a kid someone a sax player mel collins or somebody okay. to play as he says the melodic parts on the lp track were played by mel collins who was a member of king crimson and also toured with dire straits and brian ferry amongst others Freeform jazzy stuff is played by William Gregory. William! Oh, stuff is such a load of wank. Oh, just look how many notes I can play and how quickly I can play them. It's quality work, and there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few, and it'll be perfect. Just play the melody. Oh, uh, who would later achieve greater fame as one half of Gold Frap? <laughs> Sample trope. Forty. 
40 ounces for breakfast by Blackalicious. I'm assuming it's not 40 ounces of porridge oats they're referring to. Uh, Jang Trope. And the Tears and Fears trope. We have Fear. fear is such a and another Fear. They rarely do the song live, and I don't understand that. This is a great live song. It'd be a centerpiece, a live centerpiece of pretty much any other 80s band. It's insane why they don't do this live every time. Massive, it's a perfect live track. Come on, boys. Wonderful track. This is almost the gold song. Obviously, it's a playlist song. So you can notice with this and Shout, lyrically, there is a shift from the internal, the internalized, introspective lyrics of The Hurting, but not completely. This is like, these are both like a halfway house lyrically. Uh, you can say that Shout Shout Let It All Out is the very essence of primal therapy, but it's also looking outward at the world of large. Said it's a kind of protest song. Similarly, the working hours, blah, 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 was inspired by pressure from the record company to deliver. Find out what this fear is about is also about eternalized struggle and primal expression. So these are kind of hybrid songs, like all hybrids, either work on both levels or neither, and these both work. Great start to an album. No way and keep this going. Hold on. The Working Hour is followed by Everybody Wants to Rule the World, a song that seemed to sell wherever it was heard. Well, I've got to be honest with you about this song. Because it doesn't well, actually... lie to me. Okay. All right. Well, I'll lie to you. It doesn't mean a lot, this song. What happened was I had a tune. And our producer really liked it. That'll be Chris Hughes again. Everybody Wants to Rule the World was co-written by you. It was. I guess that a, a song like that takes on a life of its own. Yeah, in fact, very nearly didn't take on a life because uh, I had heard Roland just strumming the two main chords in the song. Over and over again, and he didn't really want to do anything with it. And I said, what are those chords? Let's have a look. And I, I built a little sequence of program. And downtime in the studio, every now and again, I'd play this little sequence I built of the, of the shuffle and the chords. And um, Roland's wife said, uh, oh, that's really, really nice. And I said, yeah, it is really nice. Tell your husband, because he's not that bothered about it. And uh, eventually I, I got everyone to uh, agree to sort of sit down and build and write and finish the song. So that's how, it was a co-write, yeah, so that's how that worked. And um, a rhythm. Well, um, I'll be quite honest with you. I programmed the drum machine to the same rhythm as um, Waterfront by Simple Minds. So it's not very original. And it's just one of those rhythms that's just absolutely compelling. And I had the line that went, everybody, da 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 I didn't like uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World when I wrote it because it wasn't called Everybody Wants to Rule the World, it was called Everybody Wants to Go to War. Uh, I wrote it on the acoustic guitar against the, uh, uh, the shuffled beat on the lindrum, and it sounded very, very weak. I thought it was lightweight. Um, couldn't see anything in it. I think Kurt thought the same. Even Roland thought the same. You know, we were sort of against it. It was just too... There wasn't anything, you know. 
the time, I felt it was a bit of an album album filler. I mean, I really, really? didn't. I've got to be honest. I, I I missed its potential completely. I was just too close to it or whatever. And I think I was influenced a bit by maybe Roland. I don't know about Kurt, but I think Roland just thought this is a bit bubblegumish, you know, mm-hmm. a bit of a kind of throwaway thing because it wasn't. Shout was the, the masterpiece. Yeah, it was the last thing we did. We had we had seven tracks and we needed an an eighth track. And we had the choice of three different songs. Everybody was one of them. But it just had a great feel to it, you know. And our producers going shuffle, yeah, it's a shuffle, okay, that's gonna that's a big hit in America, that's a big hit. He hadn't even heard the song, he just heard the beat, so that that'll be a hit, you know. Yeah, and there's me and Ronan go, Can you say that? So I heard the rhythm first and then Ronan sat at the piano with the chords and just sang it and said, Do you feel comfortable singing this? I said, Yeah, I feel comfortable singing that. So what? So we said, Okay, well let's do this. So we did it in about a week and a half. Stop to finish. And it was written and recorded in, I think it was five days, six days maybe, which for us was ridiculous, you know, we'd take at least a month on a song. That took months. <laughs> it took months to get right, uh-huh. and the mix was painful, uh-huh. and, you know, it ended up how it ends up and how it sounds, and it comes bursting along, and and it was tricky, you know, it was definitely... Uh-huh difficult it was there, there was work involved in making it work and sound good and all the rest of it everybody wants to rule the world mixes itself if you get that up on the desk and push the faders up to mid desk it sort of sounds great mm-hmm. you know and it yeah. that record took no time that took interesting a week, that took a week to kind of finish the writing and the playing and the mixing it was it's all very very quick came together we recorded the whole thing in what two weeks or something that song just very very simple because once we got all the parts it just made basically recorded itself cue the song Well, the, 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 the room where the light won't find you is just, um, it's, it's almost like the big chair. It's a place where you can uh, go and vent your feelings, you know, without anybody seeing you or, you know, any, any fear or that kind of thing. Playlist song? Do I need to say that? I'm not sure what else there is to say about this. This is—it's got to be, it's, it's their signature song, which in a, in a way is odd because it's—it's it's not exactly representative of their music. It's the outlier. I can't think of anything else like it in their back catalogue. Starts with the intro to the intro, of course. And is there a more iconic second and a half in eighties pop? Hello, this is Gavin, the editor of Eighties Geography. 
I was going to this point editing some one and a half second snippets of popular songs of the 80s but then I realised uh, I couldn't be asked and uh, just listen to the intro to the episode so there plus he never listens to his shit back so I'll get away with it thank you cheers it's a very weirdly structured song it's no real chorus and to be honest there isn't really much of a song that's where the Lord cover version that doesn't do anything for me it's a bit of a dirge to me it's just all atmosphere find you acting on your best behavior turn your back on mother nature everybody wants to lose and it's got that, that modern female way of singing this like you've had a stroke everybody wants to Actually, can you sing out one side of the mouth? It's a bit irritating. Um, <laughs> you want a great cover version, you've got to go for the Shane Ritchie one, sorry. Anybody um, not from Britain, Shane Ritchie is like an all-round entertainer. He's kind of like, kind of like our Frank Sinatra, and he can sing, he can act. He's got the whole. Actually, he's more than Frank Sinatra because he's a comedian as well. Very, very funny guy. So he can do a bit of everything. He's a kind of Renaissance man, but also a man of the people at the same time. It's quite, quite a weird trick he pulls off. Check out his oeuvre. <sighs> now it starts with the shuffle rhythm. Now this, you listen to that. That's already a hit. You don't need a song, it's like it's sold already. You just, on some deep rooted level, that just connects and it just screams hit single. This is a hit. That shuffle on those two notes, and of course, a genius in the song is not in the melody and the lyrics. Good though they are, it's in the rhythm. And that's why Chris Hughes fully deserved his, his co write credit. Makes the song. Uh, sample trope. Actually, way more songs uh, sampled Shout than Rule the World. But I think they've been used more effectively in Rule the World. So here's a sample. The bombs and tanks makes mankind extinct. But since the beginning of time, it's been men with arms fighting. Lost lives in the towers and Pentagon. Why then must it go on? We must stop the killing. Tell me why we die with all God's children. Uh. Come on. Yeah. For the world. What? What?
Rule by Naz. Rise, open parenthesis, intro, close parenthesis by Tai Yang. And dear old Kanye back, this time with Miley Cyrus, with the version of Black Skinhead. Um, one of the 12-inch mixes, when we're talking about 12-inch mixes, God, I love a nice 12-inch. Oh, hello! The urban mix has those horrible synth horns on. Beyond cheesy, I'm so glad they took that off the version that we all know and love before it's released. That, that would have ruined it. Though they did find further use for it in the following year. Another thing that's interesting uh, about such a big mainstream poppy hit single. Big mainstream poppy hit single. Mother, you say that. Big mainstream poppy hit single. Is there's not, not a lot of vocals on it, really. Uh, for a four minute song, you've got a 29 second intro, a 45 second middle bit. Actually, around my notes, 45 minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 45 <minute>. <laughs> <laughs> Be sure to mention 29 second intro, 45 minute middle bit, 35 second fade out, the guitar solo. So, in the four minutes song, there's 46 minutes of instrumental. That's quite a lot. No, but it's about two minutes. It's about half the song is instrumental. Maybe that's another reason why uh, Roland gave it to Kurt alongside Listen. It's like not many, not many vocal bits in there anyway. It doesn't matter. I had a call from uh, Ian Stanley, the keyboard player. He said, could you come up and do a guitar solo for us? I said, sure. When do you want me? He said, well, if you can come up now. So I went up and they had, all they had was, for everybody who wants to rule the world, was the down, and, and uh-huh. the group. That's all they had. They That's had it. no. Yeah, but, but they all said, "We know we want you to play guitar solo on the end of this song." It was two takes: the first half, the first take, and the second half, the second take. I was there for 15 minutes, and I remember I got paid 200 pounds, and I thought, oh, God, I could really carry on doing this. So, in summary, everybody wants to rule the world. It's a slight song, but a brilliant record. Therefore, it's a great song. And necessary within the structure of the album. So it was released in the USA in March and in the UK in April. And the UK got to number two and kept off the top by We Are the World. In the US, it took till June to get to number one. We thought it's what the album needed, which was a, a light interlude, but we never thought it was this huge hit, which it became. Dave Bates wanted us to break America. He kept talking about a drive time record, a drive time hit. I didn't know what he was talking about. The first time I heard it, I nearly wept with joy because that was my drive time hit there and then. People drive around with their arm out the window and they're whistling the song and it's, it sounds perfect. Before we'd even got to America to play, a week before we got to America to play, it went to number one. It just uh, was amazing. It just uh, went pretty much straight to number one. And we were touring Canada at the time, I think. Uh, we were actually doing the video for Head Over Heels in Toronto at the time when we found out. I was asleep, I was woken up. The first time we stepped into America, we were at number one. It really was uh, very, very strange. I think also it was wild, it was good fun. We did it specifically for the American market. We have that ability to change our style. So that's exactly what we did. And it set up Shape incredibly well. 
I love the song, I love both songs. And now, now that Shout's come out, now that Head Over Heels is out, people are starting to see, and with all the songs that have been played off the album, what we're really about. It's replacing Everything She Wants by Wham. I love that song. Oh, that would be in my top ten of the 80s. I think that's the best thing George Michael ever did. Everything She Wants is oh, The six and a half minute version is just amazing. forward back to mother's talk again albeit a longer version well I'll, I'll let me explain about mother's talk okay. the initial idea comes from an old wives tale which says if a kid pulls a face what you say is you'll stay like that when the wind changes so the opening line is my features form with a change in the weather and uh, when the wind blows when the mother's talk you know, old wives tale, kind of thing. And uh, I was finishing the lyric around the time where the Persian and cruise missiles were being um, based, American missiles were being based in England. There's a lot of that on the news. When the Wind Blows is a cartoon book by a guy called Jeffrey Baxter. Pedant's Corner, When the Wind Blows, is um, a cartoon book by Raymond Briggs. And it starts off very lightweight, it's about an old couple. And uh, it ends up very, very disgusting, you know, and morbid. And it's a, an, a, a nuclear, anti-nuclear cartoon. And um, so that's where When the Wind Blows comes from, and it goes in the song, When the Weather Starts to Burn, yeah. then you'll know that you're in trouble. It's the closest we'll ever get to an anti-nuclear song. Yeah. a minute of this uh taken from an earlier mix in the previous year. Uh, string sample though is from a Barry Manilow track. I haven't been able to work out which track it was. It could be Copacabana. But I worked out how many albums there were that predated 1984 by Barry Manilow. And there's quite a few. And I thought, should I listen to every single track? <laughs> Do I care that much? <laughs> No, it's from a Barry Manilow. I do like some Barry Manilow songs, though. I remember all my life. Everybody likes Mandy. And Capacabana itself, of course. And Bermuda Triangle. Try and see it from my angle. Sample trope.
Still Walking by Stephen Walking. Stephen Still should cover it, then he can call it Still Stills. Uh, it's a sample of the strings, which of course it is in itself a sample of that Barry Manilow song, as yet undetermined, though probably covered Cabana. Uh, so it's a sample of a sample, and this may well have been the moment in pop where pop started to eat itself, and pop will eat itself the group themselves sampled Shout in a song, so we've come full circle. Yay! I think that'll do for now. I think that covers it. And a side one. And that's it for part two. I was going to do the album in one go, but time is against me, taking way too long between episodes. And we're already over an hour, so it's a good place to stop. Thanks for all those fellow pop travellers on this journey. Literally, it seems everybody has at least two podcasts on the go, so every listen I get means something. Thank you. Spread the word. Feedback welcome. Ratings on iTunes, etc., etc. It really helps with the motivation, getting the word out to everybody. I mean, it's a lot of work, and I'm not blessed with masses of free time. Well, boo fucking who? Um, so, all help appreciated. E. Special shout out to John at the Hustle podcast for allowing me to use the interview excerpts. It's an excellent podcast. I've listened to it for a few years now. It's great guests. Just the Tears of Fears related ones alone. Uh, I've used in this episode as Jerry Marotta, drummer. Dave Bascom, engineer, producer, Chris Hughes, producer, Steve Thompson, um, mixed shout, Neil Taylor, guitarist, and also in, in the future episodes, Alita Adams as well. So there's a lot of lot of great interviews. So um, thanks again to John, and do check that podcast out. We will finish the album in episode three. Now at this point, I will see off with with a tune related to the relevant artist, uh, but I'm not going to do it for this episode. I'm going to dip in the Shane Ritchie songbook one more time. Consider it an embarrassment of Ritchie's. It's a quite astounding track. Uh, One-ups Frank again, because he never did a song called Let's Do Sex. But Shane Ritchie out pawns Prince and rides that boner to pop heaven. Till next time. Something I've got little love As for patience I have none All I want is to get close to you So much closer than you want me to How much longer till I'm waking up Oh, I love you Yes, I love you You say, let's do lunch But I say, let's do sex You know that everything will be alright You say, let's do lunch But I say And turn the lights down low Slide your body next to mine I still find them incredibly polite, actually. The general person in the street. I mean, in New York, when I'm in New York, you know, now I've got an apartment there. 
The only time people just come up and say, "Hey, you're Kurt from Tears for Fears, aren't you? How you doing? When's the new record coming out? Sorry to bother you." And I'm saying, "Well, I'll come out at the end of the year." He says, "Good luck," and they just walk on. Or I just get people walking. I get this quite a lot. People just walk past and go, "Love your music," and walk straight on by, which is wild. I mean, I, you know, I like that. You know, people in general in America are very polite. They don't get as abusive as English people can get. You know, I mean, if you get sort of a couple of drunken Englishmen and they recognise you, I mean, it's a nightmare. Oh, have I for tears for fear? Hey, shout, shout! <laughs> and like you're in the middle of this pub, hiding under a table. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right in the favour, then. Fantastic. I've heard that for 35 years. Fantastic.